Okay, morning church. Um, I always enjoy an opportunity to be able to share. Um, and the reason for that is I always find that the Lord uses it as a time to highlight something that he wants me to focus on um, and really have a chance to dig into. Um, and what I really want to speak on today is uh, God's faithfulness. So I know we've, we had touched on a bit earlier that we, we do have uncertain times at the moment, and I think every generation thinks they're living through the most uncertain times. But yeah, I've maybe been thinking about the future a bit more um, and, you know, we're often told that in uncertain times we can turn to the Lord and we must put our trust in the Lord. We must put our faith in Him, you know. Um, and He should be the, He is a faithful God and we can put our trust that He will come through for us. Um, there's that verse in Romans that says He will turn all things to His good. Um, and, you know, this is all well and true and these are good teachings, but I feel that sometimes we are. We're given the end of the story without the plot line. Um, why can I believe in God's faithfulness? I mean, I, I want to have the reasons that I can put behind God as a faithful God. Um, and, you know, I did a, I did a Myers-Briggs personality test sometime last year. Um, I'm sure many of you are familiar with them, but for those of you who aren't, you answer a bunch of questions, and essentially it, it assigns you a category with some strengths and weaknesses and traits and stuff like that. Um, and for, for those of you who know me well, you won't be surprised I came out as a logistician. Um, so I want things to make sense. I want it to be reasonable and logical and defendable. Um, so I was, I was quite relieved when I, when I read um, 1 Peter 3 verse 15. Uh, and it says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks, to give reasons for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So I think Peter had a little bit of a logistician in him because he said that we must look for the reasons behind our faith. We must be able to give answers to it. Um, so what I'm, I'm trying to do today is find out, first of all, is what does the Bible say about God's faithfulness? I mean, that's a good place to start. And then what reasons, what evidence do we have of that? What can we put our hope in that points to his faithfulness? What can we build our defense on? Um, and yeah, so as I said, a good place to begin with is the Bible. What does it say about God's faithfulness? Um, and I want to begin with Exodus 34 verse 6. Um, so this is the most quoted verse out of the Bible, by the Bible. So um, later writers would reference back to this verse very often. And the reason is, is that it's the first time that God defines himself or says his name, essentially. So if we're trying to find out who God is, if, is he a faithful God, looking at what he says about himself is um, probably a really good place to start. Um, so a little bit of background. Moses had gone up Mount Sinai um, to renew a covenant with the Lord. And before the Lord spoke, he said these words. So the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So this is a beautiful picture of who the Lord is. This is the dictionary definition of God. He is a God abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Um, but this loses some of its beauty when you take it out of the context of Exodus. Um, so it, we, we, it says we have a faithful God, but 
what is he faithful through? So I want to take a little bit step back. We're going to keep on going backwards here and look at the Exodus story and what culminates really in, in God giving that definition. So um, if you just travel with me, and I want to try and get us also to think that this is not a, a myth or a legend that we are reading about in the Bible, that these were historical events. Um, it's quite easy sometimes to read a, a Bible verse and just put it in the same category as we do a Greek and Roman God. Like, it's just this thing that happened. But these were real people going through real events and, and try and put the impact that that would have had as if we were walking through that. Okay. So, um, the Exodus story begins in Egypt, and um, God promised to set Israelites free from Egypt, um, and the Pharaoh wasn't very accommodating at the time. So, he sent, first off, 10, 10 plagues through to force Pharaoh's hand, essentially, to let the Israelites go. And I'm not going to go through all 10, but I want to go through some of them just to try and picture what it would be like to live through that. So um, the very first plague that he sent was when he turned the, the water of the Nile to blood. So again, like this is, God says he's going to do something and suddenly the, the water of the river has turned to blood. It said fish died, the people couldn't drink, they had to go and dig wells to the side of the Nile. Um, to be able to get drinking water. So this is someone living through this. If you, if you are an Israelite looking for a God who is faithful to his promises, this is a really big sign. And it's really the first of, of many. So the next one I just wanted to look at was um, when he turned the days to night, essentially. Um, it's from Exodus 10, and it says, The Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. So, I don't know, trying to picture what darkness that could be felt is. That's, you know, camping in the middle of the berg with no one around you in the middle of night, but for three days. Um, it's a, another sign from God that he is there and present, right? Um, and then the final, the plague that they sent was the, the death of the firstborn. So, the Lord said, look, we don't go, go, go to bed at night, paint your door with the blood of the lamb. The angel of death will pass over you, but all the pharaohs and all the Egyptians' first poor sons died. It's quite hectic to work out one day and walk out the door and your neighbor's kids, not just your neighbor's kid, but a whole bunch of, of children have passed away. And it's, this is God showing himself to the Israelites. Okay? And it continues on. So the pharaoh at this point has had enough. He says, okay, Israelites, you can go. Um, and they, they start walking in the, into the desert. Um, and I just want to read from Exodus 13:20, and it says, after leaving Sakoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By the day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. So if we are an ordinary Israelite at that point looking for signs of a, a Lord who's fulfilling his promise, you've got a pillar of cloud that's following in front of you every single day. And okay, cool, maybe it's just a weird cloud shape. We see that all the time. At night, you've got a pillar of fire leading the way. It's quite clear that you have a God who's walking in front of you and walking with you, a faithful God to his promises. And um, they then arrive at the edge of the Red Sea, and the Egyptians now want their back and are coming towards them. And the Israelites crowd, Lord, what are you going to do now? Like, you take us out of Egypt, and now you put us in this terrible situation. The Lord says, don't worry, I will provide. I'll, I am faithful to my word. 
and Moses passed the Red Sea, and they walk along dry land. So, I mean, the story so far has just been God providing, God providing, God providing, clear, clear evidence of a God that is with them and for them. Um, and, I mean, uh, if you keep on reading the, the Exodus story, it's just miracle after miracle after miracle. You get to um, Exodus 16, so the Israelites complained of being hungry, and then Exodus 16 verse 14 says, when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is this? For they did not know what it was. I mean, if you think about that in context, that's a pretty reasonable response. What is this? They've never seen this before. And Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. When they got thirsty, Moses struck the rock and water appeared. So all through the Exodus story, the, the Israelites had evidence of God being there for them, God fulfilling his promises. Um, and then essentially what happens is Moses gets to Mount Sinai and he goes up to, to receive the law from, from God. And as soon as he's away, um, the Israelites turn their back on God. So they build the, the, the altar, the golden calf. And this is from Exodus 32 verse 1. This is when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain. They gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. I always have to laugh a bit when you read that. Like, this is the, the leader, this is the guy who split the Red Sea, and like, oh, he's taking a bit long. We don't know what's happened to him. Give us our own God. Like, they immediately turn away from the Lord after seeing his faithfulness throughout the entire journey. And what's incredible for me is that, you know, after that, after the Lord had seen the Israelites turn away from him, this is when he then proclaims who he is. Then he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It only comes after that betrayal. So, you know, oftentimes we, we, God's faithfulness towards us doesn't depend on, on us. It's, it has no impact on how we think we're living our lives, um, whether we are walking right behind God in his shadow or whether we are way off on the side God's faithfulness doesn't depend on us. Um, and I think sometimes it's a bit of a mark of our own self-importance where we think that you know, what we do can influence God's character because he is divine and he says he will be faithful no matter what. And this is the faithfulness of God. That's what we are well, told to trust in. It's not a faithfulness that depends on us. It's an eternal faithfulness. Um, and this is, this is his dictionary definition. And, you know, you can read throughout the Bible tons and tons and tons of verses that speak of God's faithfulness. Another one that really stands out is 2 Timothy 2 verse 13. It says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So God's faithfulness, it doesn't depend on us. It's, it's all on him. Um, that, is the, that is the faithfulness of God. So to take a step back, the first question we wanted to answer was, is God a faithful God? The Bible clearly defines him as one. Um, and then what I want to look at now is, okay, what confidence do we have that that God is going to be faithful to us as Christians now today? Um, we know that he says he is faithful, but how can, what can we put behind that? What can we stand on that points to that? Um, and I think for Christians, the, 
thing that we have to look at is Jesus as the cornerstone of our faith. If God has been faithful in fulfilling his promises about Jesus, then the rest of it has to be true as well. We can't have a Jesus that is a real God that died and rose again and then not have the rest of it. It's kind of all or one. So I want to look to Jesus, both the signs that point to him and the evidence for him as the reasons why we can trust that we have a faithful God. Um, Marnus Nell spoke spoke last year, and I really enjoyed his his preach, but the one thing that stood out for me was when he said, Jesus is always the answer. So if we're looking for evidence of God's faithfulness, we need to look at Jesus. And I I want to begin with um, some of the prophecies that were spoken about him. Um, F.F. Bruce, he was a professor of biblical criticism, uh, quite a well-known theologian from the previous century, Um, And he wrote that the argument from prophecy and the argument from miracle were were regarded by first century Christians and by their successors in the second and following centuries as the strongest evidence for the truth of the gospel. And the Bible even lays down a challenge. It says in Isaiah 41, verse 21 to 23, present your case, says the Lord, set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Tell us, you idols, what is going to happen. Tell us what the former things have come, so that we may consider them and know their final outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds, so that we may know that you are gods. Do something, whether good or bad, so that we may be dismayed and filled with fear. The Bible threw down this gauntlet, and I think it's very fair that we pick that up and test Jesus against that. Um, You know, if, if there are fulfilled prophecies that at least points towards a real God, a God who is as he is a God who fulfills his promises. Um, and, you know, before I, before I really start getting into this, it, this is, the historicity of Jesus is a huge topic. Um, it's, I'm not, I've done some study into it, but I'm by no means a scholar, and there's a lot, there's libraries of books on the subject. So what I'm trying to get at here is to consider the implications that we serve a God who has made predictions and were fulfilled. A God who has a historical, is grounded in historical fact and is real. Um, and there's a, there's a bunch of stuff out there that I would really encourage that you to read on your own time to, to back this up. I can only present a very, very small argument in the time that I have here. It's not my goal to present an airtight argument, but just to make you think about what the implications of it are. Um, Josh McDowell, I used quite a lot in in prepping here. He's a a good resource, both for very thick terms and very short introductions. So he covers quite a wide wide range if you are looking into it. So about Jesus Christ, there there were over 300 predictions made about him. The number is debated, but quite confidently say there are over 300 prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus. Um, And... Yeah, Peter Stoner, he was a, a mathematician, and he undertook a statistical analysis on just eight of the 300 um, and tried to determine what, the, what were the probability that this would have just happened through pure chance. Um, and to do this, as an example, there's a verse in Micaiah um, 5 verse 2 that essentially says that Jesus will come from Bethlehem. So what he and his team did was they would say, okay, what is the average population of Bethlehem at that time? It was 10,000 people. What is the average population of the world? 
at that time it was one and a half billion, I'm pulling numbers here, the probability would then be the one over the other. Um, and for each successive event, you would multiply the probabilities together. Um, and he worked out that calculating the odds of all eight events occurring by the same person by pure chance was one in times 10 to the power 17, um, which is a very, very big number. Um, and I think we lose our ability to really conceptualize how large of a number that is. So he had an analogy that I've South Africanized to make it a bit, uh, a bit more relevant to us. So if you had to take a five rand coin and, and mark it as the one in 10 to the power 17, and then pour out 10 to the power 17 or 10 to the power 17 coins across South Africa, they would sit 30 centimeters deep. So we then find an enthusiastic volunteer, Liv can volunteer to be blindfolded and told, go and find the coin. Um, so really, the, the chances of that just being chance are, are very, very, very low. Um, and whilst there, there are obviously skeptical rebuttals to, to prophecy, it does at least prevent, present a very strong case that God is a faithful God and is a real God. There were prophecies made that were fulfilled. Um, and if we move from this to the life of Jesus, um, you know, as I said before, his, his life is the cornerstone of our Christian faith. He is the ultimate promise from God. And if God fulfilled his promise in Jesus Christ, he is a faithful God. You have to accept everything with the one. You can't just disregard it. If he was a historical figure who died and rose again, then God is a real God. Um, and yeah, I want to just look at two points that point at least towards an historical Jesus. There's a lot more, as I said before, research on this topic, but just, just to start off and, and get you to consider the implications of it. Um, okay, so I want to just read for a while, uh, Luke 24, 1 to 10. It's a bit of a passage, so bear with me. Um, it says, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stones rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood before them in dazzling apparel. And they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men to be crucified on the third day to be crucified and then rise on the third day. And so they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, and Mary the mother of James, and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. Now, it, not be, it may not be immediately apparent what the impact of that last verse is to a modern audience, but um, at the time, women had very low standing in the, in the Jewish culture. Um, so much so there are some rabbinic expressions um, from the time, and, and these are two of them. One is, sooner let the words of the law be burnt than delivered to women. And um, happy is he whose children are male, but woe to him whose children are female. So they're quite brutal. Um, so much so that the testimony of women at that time was not... Um, could not stand in court. So the testimony of women was disregarded in, in, in a court of law at the time. 
Um, so, having that recorded in the, in the gospel, that the empty tomb was found by women, doesn't necessarily prove that Jesus was real, but it does at least point towards the records being as they were, and it being recorded faithfully. Because if this was just something made up 100 years later, that wouldn't have been the way they recorded it. It would have been recorded as the, the male disciples finding the tomb of Jesus. Um, and it does give some credence to the to what is recorded in the Gospels. They cannot just be dismissed as mere fabrications. Um, and this is even more apparent when we just look at the spread of the early church. Um, again, I, I try to put myself in the, in the disciples' place. They are following a, a religious leader who is killed. Um, and if you read the Gospels, it does say that they were scattered, they were frightened, the, Peter denied knowing the Lord. I mean, this is... This is what they built their life around, and he's dead, he's gone. Um, and but for them to then go and build an entire religion and a growing, thriving early church on that lie doesn't really make sense to me. That, you know, they were being persecuted, they were being thrown into prison, they were being killed. And to carry on with trying to spread the truth, to staying firm to their beliefs through all of that, if it was all just a lie they made up. The, the growth of the early church points to Jesus having actually died and risen again, because that is what they built their entire, entire faith around. Um, so what I'm, what I'm trying to get here through all of this is that God's ultimate promises to us was that we would be saved through Jesus Christ. And he not only pointed towards him, in the prophecies that were fulfilled through the Lord. We had a Jesus Christ who was a real figure who died and rose again. So when we are looking for evidence to support God being a faithful God, the evidence is in Christ. He is, what our, he is the source of our hope. He is the source of our confidence. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't depend on what we think or believe. If God was a real God, then Jesus Christ died and rose again. And that's, that's what it all follow, flows from. Um, yeah, we don't, we don't worship a wispy and mysterious God that, um, you know, is out there that's airy-fairy and not really touchable and real. We worship a, a God who's grounded in historical fact um, and is a reasonable and defendable. And, yeah, so I hope that this gives a little bit of hopes to answer that question if people ask, why do you believe in God? Well, maybe a small part of the answer can be because I believe he was a real God a real person who died and rose again. And when we're looking for why do we have a faithful God, it's because we have a faithful God who says he is faithful and has proven it again and again. <laughs>